0: Today on Truth in Politics and Culture, the latest information on Israel's war with Hamas. Why has the ground war been delayed? President Biden's Oval Office address tries to link Israel's war with Hamas to Russia's war with Ukraine. The House drama continues, and Jorn van der offers another story on what happened to Natalie Holloway. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome into a Friday. We used to call this when I was doing radio, we call this back patting day. You just reach around, pat yourself on the back because you've made it all the way to the weekend. Surely, if you got this far, you can make it to five o'clock or 12 o'clock or whenever you're done today. And then you can. uh, Yeah, we get to the weekend Then you can crank it up. I hope you're going to have a great weekend. Uh, looks like we might have been have some rain coming into our our area, uh, perhaps over the weekend. I know we've we've had some cooler temperatures lately. Late, lately, wow, starting to feel um, a little bit like fall. I mean, you get up in the morning, it's forty something degrees, and uh, that's uh, put on a light jacket. Weather, shall we say? It's kind of like having your perfect date for those of you who remember that movie. Uh, Anyway, uh, great to have you listen to the program this morning. Uh, If you're live on Facebook, thanks. Uh, We're going to dive into the news here because we've got um, so much to get to today. Uh, The war between Israel and Hamas, Uh, to say that it's heating up would be an understatement. It's uh, red hot right now. In fact, there's a breaking story coming out of uh, Israel that the IDF is reporting that on Friday morning, that is, um, at some point in just the last several hours, three Hezbollah terrorists were identified and killed in an airstrike on the border with Lebanon. So Israel essentially has two fronts. I mean, they have the—and the, really, you could say three, because there hasn't been a lot of activity in the West Bank. There's been a lot of protest. But as far as seeing the war expand to the West Bank area— uh, not yet, but that could also happen. But, but for all intents and purposes, Israel is at war, getting ready to go into Gaza, and at the same time, preparing for what's going to happen as soon as they enter the city of Gaza. Uh, there's likely to be an attack from the north. Um, so it's estimated, by the way, that there are about 50,000 Hezbollah, or Hamas, rather, fighters that are in Gaza. And that's, that's not a huge strip of land that we're talking about. When you're talking about all of Israel, you're talking about a very small sliver of land. And you've got a smaller sliver of that small sliver where you've got 50,000 Hamas uh, terrorists who are ready to go to war. Now, Israel's got about 350,000 troops so they're, they greatly outnumber Hamas, but Hamas has the advantage, particularly in Gaza, of an extensive tunnel uh, network that they've built primarily with goods and concrete that have been sent to them from Israel that was supposed to go for the benefit of the Palestinian people. And we're going to get into a long explanation about that today. We're going to talk about why there's such a difference between what the West thinks when it comes to Palestinians being citizens and how Hamas treats them as subjects and why that's the way it works under Sharia law. Uh, but we're going to get into that a little bit later on in the show in detail. But uh, there are 20,000 fighters, Hamas fighters, estimated to be in Lebanon, and they have tens of thousands. Uh, well, actually, it's estimated they have about 100, 150,000 rockets in Lebanon. And so if if Lebanon were to unleash all of its Hamas fighters and all of its rockets, um, Israel would definitely have a major military conflict that they would have to fight on two fronts once they enter into Gaza. And that, I think that's playing into part of the delay that we have. Plus, there's another element to that uh, that we're going to talk about in a few minutes as well as we look kind of from the 30,000-foot level at, at all of the pieces uh, that have to come together for Israel to be successful when they go into Gaza. So additionally, IDF, according to this report from Fox News on the killing of the Hezbollah fighters, IDF snipers shot at armed men who were identified near another area of the border fence. Israel's military has clashed with Hezbollah terrorists several times in the past two weeks since the war broke out with Hamas, the Iran-backed Islamic extremist group, has called on Israel to cease bombardment of Gaza and threatened to join the conflict on the side of Hamas, Hezbollah officials said Wednesday the group is a 1,000 times stronger than in previous conflicts with Israel. Uh, He went on to say the response to the mistake you might make with our resistance will be resounding, said senior Hezbollah official Hashim Sadafin, Uh, during a rally in a suburb of Beirut where protesters also waved Hezbollah and Palestinian flags and chanted death to America and Israel, according to Reuters and The Guardian. So that's that's breaking. That is just happening, or the IDF has just released this information um, about sort of an uptick in the violence as it relates to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Also, Yesterday, the USS Kearney, a Navy destroyer, which is operating in the northern Red Sea, intercepted three land-based cruise missiles and several drones that were launched by the Houthi forces in Yemen. So now there's another front that could be opening up. The Houthis are also backed by Iran, and they've been at war in Yemen. And, of course, the Saudis have had uh, soldiers in Yemen trying to protect the government there. Um and this has been going on for years. So now the Houthis are at least turning some of their attention to Israel. They can't. The Navy can't confirm, or at least it hasn't confirmed yet, where those where those missiles were headed. But they appeared to be headed to Israel. I think that's probably pretty clear. Um, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon Pest secretary, told reporters the missiles were potentially headed toward Israel. But he said the U.S. hasn't finished its assessment of what they were targeting. Another U.S. official said they don't believe the missiles which were shot down over the water were aimed at the U.S. warship. But now I, I don't know how, well, when the assessment is finished, then we'll talk about it. But it seems to me uh, they were shot down over the water. Uh, of course, firing from Yemen, uh, the missiles could cross the water headed toward Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. Uh, but it, it's just, th- this is pretty confusing right now. I mean, the whole situation you've got U.S. assets, military assets, na- naval assets there in the region where a war is taking place. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of firepower with two aircraft carrier groups and a lot of uh, aircraft that have been moved into the area. And to think that this thing is not going to expand to include the United States in, in some major way, which Really, it all it already is. These, these could be considered the first shots shooting these missiles down. Could be considered the first shots of the United States in getting involved in this war. And of course, we know that we have Delta Force soldiers in Israel. Uh, and of course, the whole world now knows who they are because the Biden administration posted their pictures, which is uh, is just absolutely irresponsible and. On the, on the verge of insanity. I mean, you do not put American soldiers' pictures anywhere on the Internet to alert Hamas and, other, and Hezbollah and anybody else that wants to kill them that they're there, that they can be identified, that their families, because these pictures have been released, could be targeted even here in the United States or wherever they are. And so uh, they could be... Uh, the family members could be taken hostage. I mean, there's, they could be killed. There's a whole host of bad things and everything that could happen from their faces being plastered on the internet by the Biden administration, all of those things are bad. Um, And it just, I mean, it was somebody being irresponsible. I mean, I'm sure there are conspiracy theorists out there who are saying that this was done on purpose by someone in the Biden administration. And I'll say this, I mean, we've already had one Biden administration official uh, resign, a lower level official resign. I believe that was out of Homeland Security because they are um, upset about the administration's support of Israel in the war with Hamas. And so if you've got got a progressive left-wing government, you've got a progressive left-wing president, and all of the progressive left-wing actors in the world are supporting Hamas at this point, supporting the terrorist uh, against Israel. And so could there be someone in the State Department or in the Biden administration, I should say, somewhere that would post those pictures on purpose, uh, hoping that, Hamas would, well, knowing that they're going to see the pictures, they're going to know who the soldiers are, and would go after their families, that that would help the effort with Hamas. I mean, I'm not going to rule that out. Not when you've already, not when you already have someone who has resigned because they don't like the fact that the Biden administration is too pro Israel, particularly after the lies that Hamas told about bombing the hospital. By the way, we now know when it comes to the hospital bombing, there were dozens of people that were killed, not 500, and all of them were in the parking lot. There weren't, uh, or at least the vast majority, there. Were, the The hospital, the rocket fell in the parking lot, not on the hospital, and all of that has been borne up by video, by recordings, by every means possible. But the damage, of course, was already done when all the major news outlets in the world ran with the story that Israel bombed the hospital and killed 500 civilians. Um, a U.S. official said, well, as I said, they don't believe the missiles. Back to the story about the missiles being fired from Yemen. They don't believe they were going toward the, the warship, but they, they, they haven't announced yet where they believe they were headed. Uh, the most recent drone attack was Thursday at Al-Assad Air Base in western Iraq. And it was a group. They believe the attack came from a group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. This information, by the way, is coming to us from the Associated Press, who had a reporter there on the ground. Um, uh, anyway, the Islamic Resistance posted a statement claiming responsibility for the attack, saying they had fired a salvo of rockets at the base and they hit their targets directly and precisely. Well, a U.S. official confirmed that that the attack was made but said it was too early to assess any impact. Also on Thursday, the al Tanif garrison in southeastern Syria was struck by drones. U.S. troops have maintained a presence at the base for a number of years to train Syrian allies and monitor the Islamic State's military activity in Syria. Uh, The Pentagon said one drone was shot down, but another hit the base and caused minor injuries. So now we have Americans that are in harm's way. They're doing what our United States military does. They go into hot spots, um, into dangerous situations, and now we have U.S. forces being hit and being injured at the same time that we still have American hostages being held in Gaza and 37 Americans confirmed dead in the Hamas attacks against Israel. So the United States is involved in this. And one of my questions is I'm wondering... Why do we not have, and 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 I know there are backdoor negotiations going on. I'm sure there are discussions with uh, Qatar, even though Qatar is a uh, is in the pocket of the Iranian mullahs, and what we can expect to get from them. I mean, that's where the leaders of Hamas are hiding out. They're in Qatar. They're not in Gaza, and so. Uh, That's one of the reasons that I think the delay is taking place with Israel going into Gaza because they're beginning to ask the question, what are we going to have when we get in there? I mean, if we're going to kill the senior leaders of Hamas, now they've taken out some of the leadership that's left in Gaza, but the senior leaders are watching from the sidelines in Qatar. And that is going to be, you you know, it's going to require an assassination team to track them down uh, they're not going to be able to go into Qatar and, and take them, and, and the Qataris are not going to give them up because they're in line with Iran. They're also supposed to be an American ally. Um, and, and, of course, th- this all plays back into this in ridiculous notion that the Biden administration thinks that they can placate Iran by giving up $6 billion to Iran in exchange for hostages. Uh, Iran's bigger plan, their overall plan. It's a, they operate under Sharia law. What they want is the complete destruction of Israel. And giving them money is never going to play case. It's never going to change their philosophy or their dedication to the Quran. It, it, it's just not. Um, so um, anyway, Syrian opposition activists said there was a separate drone attack on an oil facility in eastern Syria that houses American troops. Omar Abu Lala, Laya, um, a Europe-based activist who heads the Deir Ezor 24 media outlet, said three drones with explosives struck the Conoco gas field in the eastern province of Deir Zor that borders Iraq. The Britain-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and Opposition War Monitor also confirmed explosions at the site. So now we've got We've got multiple attacks. We've got missiles fired out of Yemen. We've got drone attacks in Syria. Um, We've got uh, drone attacks in Iraq. On Tuesday, militants launched three drones against two Iraq bases that the U.S. uses to train forces and conduct operations against the Islamic State. During the spate of the launches, one warning turned out to be a false alarm at al-Assad, but it sent personnel rushing into bunkers. During that incident, a contractor suffered a cardiac arrest and died. Reuters, uh, Reuters, Reuter, excuse me, the spokesperson for the Pentagon, uh, Lieutenant General Ryder said, he said that the Pentagon does not yet have confirmation on who launched the drone attacks, but said the U.S. will take all necessary actions to defend U.S. and coalition forces against any threat. He said any military response would come, you can probably say this part with me, at a time and a manner of our choosing which means we don't know exactly who it was, we don't know who to go after, but as soon as we do, we're going to go after somebody. And that's, a, that's a, the vague way that the Pentagon talks when they are not sure whether, and, and, and I would add that they're not even sure that some type of military attack against them would be the, the correct action, because that goes back to the manner of our choosing. The time and the manner. The time would be when they identify them. The identifying. The manner would include whether or not it would be wise to take a military action against the group that um, launched these drones, or if that's going to start another conflict that the United States would have to be involved in. I, I I have to tell you, I do not see a path where the United States does not get involved in this in this war. Um, I I would like to think that there's a path. I think. There's a path that the United States is not directly involved in the war with r- between Russia and Ukraine. We're spending billions of dollars over there, but we're not sending soldiers. I don't see how with naval assets, to, you've got, what, 10,000? I think there's 5,000 on an aircraft carrier. So you, you've got 10,000 uh, American forces in, um, in the Red Sea, and you've got uh, in the Mediterranean, and you've got... All of these forces, we know that Delta forces are in Israel. We've got a um, 2,000-member Marine Strike Force that is supposed to be deployed once the ground invasion starts, and they may be already in Israel. I mean, the United States is not going to put up—I mean, they they put—well, I was going to say they're not going to put up a flare telling everybody where the troops are moving to, but if they're going to put Delta Force faces on the Internet, then maybe they will tell everybody where they are and when they're going to move. Um, hopefully not. But you, you've got American forces that are tangentially involved, and now you've got American forces shooting down missiles that were um, uh, they assumed that they were being fired toward Israel. So um, we will I'm sure we'll hear, hear more about that once their analysis is over. But I just don't see a way. I mean, I, I think that I, I'm, I'm convinced that Iran is going to get into this. I think they plan to get into it from the beginning. I think they sense weakness with the United States, and I think they sense that Israel obviously was caught off guard with this attack from Hamas. Um, and I believe once Israel invades Gaza that they will see that as an excuse for Iran to engage, uh, certainly from Lebanon through their proxies, Hezbollah, and possibly through Syria, where they've already moved military assets. We know that. Um, and, of course, the Biden administration is telling them not to do it. If Iran gets involved, I think the United States gets involved by attacking Iran and trying to take out their military assets. Now, what happens from there is anybody's guess. I mean, I, do the Russians and the Chinese get involved? Do the Does Jordan and the other countries that surround Israel uh, do they begin to get involved? You you realize the situation with Israel? There are nine million people in a small strip of land, surrounded by about six hundred million pe- million people, and the vast majority of those people want the uh, Israel to be destroyed. Uh, thinks Israel shouldn't be there. Uh, now, and when you think about that, I mean that's overwhelming odds, um, and and the chance that all of this is going to be settled by Israel simply going into Gaza. And as one Israeli commander said yesterday, maybe taking as much as a year to work through Gaza house to house to get rid of Hamas. Um, that's, you know, I, I just don't see a, a, a situation where the United States doesn't get much more involved. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I, I wanna be wrong about that, but we're already involved. Uh, we're gonna be involved with billions of dollars, whether soldiers are sent there or not, uh, or I should say, any more soldiers, any more military assets are sent in. Uh, we're we're gonna we're going to be inextricably linked to Israel's fight against these Hamas terrorists and possibly Iran. Certainly, Hezbollah. Israel's already fighting them to the north. All right. The big question that a lot of people are asking is: You've got all these assets sitting outside of Gaza. Why is the ground war not started? Well. I, I think it's because there are a lot of logistical problems, complicating the plans uh, for uh, Israel to operate in once they get into Gaza. Uh, they're planning to take out Hamas, but they can't get the top leaders because we've, we've already talked about that. The top leaders are on the sidelines. They're in Qatar. They're nice and safe there unless the uh, Israeli Mossad is, is able to, their intelligence agencies are, are able to find them. Um, in Qatar. I, I, I don't think they would think twice about assassinating them, even if they're uh, under the auspices of the Qatarian government, if they can get to them. But right now, that's where they are. They, they're, Israel's not going to be able to go into Gaza and take them out. Um, so if Israel goes into Gaza, short of temporarily taking out the terrorist ability to attack them and taking out their fighters, what what is the long-term gain? I mean, I think Israel they're they're having to think about this. Once Israel withdraws, if they if they're not going to go in and occupy Gaza, and they don't want to do that, they they left Gaza in two thousand four. Uh, they wanted Gaza to be run by the Palestinian people, and it ended up being run by Hamas. And we're gonna and and this is part of the problem is that the Palestinians, when polling is done, now it's hard to get accurate polling out of um, that part of the world, of course, and particularly out of Gaza. Uh, but about 87% of just the Palestinian people believe that Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth. Now what so how do you make a distinction between Hamas the terrorist who are waging war and the Palestinians who agree with Hamas that Israel needs to be extinct? And that's, part of the re- that's the reason, one of the big reasons, that Egypt and Jordan are not allowing Palestinian refugees to come into their country. And it's the reason that the United States, if we're going to take Palestinian refugees, it, I, I can't imagine a scenario where we could vet them at this point enough to say that it's safe for them to come into the United States when 87% agree with the terrorist view of what needs to happen to Israel. That leaves, I mean, there are Palestinian Christians that are under siege, and, and we need to pray for them. We, we we need to be heartbroken, quite frankly, over their plight, because that would be part of the 13% in Palestine that doesn't agree that Israel needs to be destroyed. But when you've got 87%, it's just really... And of course, Hamas is controlling any of the polling data, whether uh, they're threatening uh, the Palestinian people. With uh, you know, it, you answer the, this question the wrong way, uh, then we're we're going to visit you and your family, and you will be no more. I mean, I'm sure that goes on. So it's 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 difficult to get an accurate picture, but I think it's safe to say that because the Palestinians elected Hamas, I mean, they they rejected the idea of of having um, the PLO or some type of authority over them that would be more friendly toward Israel and the rest of the world, and they chose the terrorist. Now, Hamas is not allowing them to have any kind of free election. And yes, Hamas had uh, intimidated a bunch of people in Palestine in the election that put Hamas in power to begin with, but you, you, you can't—it would be almost impossible, I would think— to separate the true believers in Palestine, those who really do support and follow in the footsteps of Hamas, that it it would be difficult to separate them if if that was um, if, if you were gonna do that, to try to figure out who would not be a threat if they were allowed to come into the country. And another problem is the hostage situation. Um, they would like to get the hostages they'd like to locate the hostages and rescue as many of them as possible it's estimated that there's about 200 hostages and there's still American hostages being hold held I've heard anywhere estimates from anywhere from 14 to 30. and and so there we've got u.s citizens there being held in Gaza I'm sure the Biden administration would like to get them out before the war begins. I'm, I'm sure that some of the discussions between Netanyahu and the unity government and the Biden administration has to do with, all right, what kind of intelligence do we have? What intelligence do you have that, that can tell us maybe where the hostages are located as a possibility we can send special forces in and get them out before the ground war begins or, are there negotiations that we can have? Uh, you, United States has a relationship with Turkey, with Qatar, um, with other Middle East Arab countries that could put pressure. The Saudis could put pressure on this, uh, on in uh, on getting the hot the hostages released. And so I'm sure there's back channel negotiations going on. And part of the reason that Israel hasn't marched into Gaza yet is that they're trying to find out can the hostages be released? Can we rescue them? I mean, nobody wants to see what's going to happen if the hostages are still in Hamas custody when Israel breaches the border with Gaza and begins to go house to house. You're going to see videos. I mean, Hamas is going to be releasing videos of hostages being tortured and murdered in horrendous ways. And that's the purpose of that is to turn public opinion against Israel, to turn public opinion in favor of... Israel backing off. Hamas knows that they cannot win a straight-up military battle with the, with the IDF forces. I mean, you put you, you know you, you you put fifty thousand Hamas fighters, three hundred and fifty thousand Israeli highly trained soldiers, and that war is over in about ten minutes. But the way that Hamas fights, the guerrilla warfare and the propaganda war that they wage which they're very successful because of Western ideas about civilians versus their idea in of Hamas about subjects, according to Sharia law. And again, we're going we're gonna to get into that in a minute. Anti-Jewish, an, another issue that Israel's having to face about the ground war, anti-Jewish and pro, pro-Palestinian protests are going on around the world and, and that gives Israel a little bit of pause. I mean, look at the outpouring in London, in France, in the United States, in the United States at, at, at the U.S. Capitol, actually led by Rashida Tlaib, a United States congresswoman who's supposed to be more concerned about supporting Israel, uh, the United States allies than she is in supporting Hamas terrorists. But, of course, that doesn't matter. And you had 300 people arrested in the capitol. I mean, this is, it, it is, and I talked about that in detail yesterday, so I'm not going to get back deeply into it today. But you've got all this going on. Plus, if you check the Muslim populations of countries in in Europe, uh, Great Britain, the population, the Muslim population is about 7%. France, the Muslim population is 9%. Germany is at 7%. And those those numbers have skyrocketed in the last several years. So Muslims are moving into these areas intentionally so that they have a bigger foothold in the west and that there's you know, you know a, a, the opportunity to upset the balance between Israel and the Islamic countries that are that surround it. And and here's the thing about the population, the Muslim population, they're not scattered throughout the country. They're actually focused in the urban areas. So in in London, about 16% of the population of London is is Muslim. Uh, In Paris, it's close to 20%. And so when they begin to protest and get out into the streets, they can block traffic, they can put pressure on, which they've done in London, by the way, and they can put pressure on their governments and Germany and France to not support the United States and their support of Israel. Um, it's it, it's a mess, and I mean this is what happens if if you have an immigration policy. The immigration policy has to include letting people in the country. You have to ask the question: Are are they going to come in because they're coming in to be citizens of France or Germany? or Great Britain, or are they coming in with an ulterior motive? Are they coming in with the purpose of disrupting the normal operation of the government in the event of something like this, when there's open conflict between Israel and Hamas, or Israel and the Arab world in some sense? Uh, I think those questions need to be asked. Um, and, and, of course, Israel has to be concerned about Hamas' ability To get propaganda out to the world. I mean, if one false story about Israel bombing a hospital, killing 500 people can instantly be reported as fact around the world, and it takes two or three days to undermine that fact when by then it's too late. I mean, what do you think is going to happen when Israel goes in and starts the ground war? How long can they, the, the IDF forces have to be asking themselves, how long can we sustain a ground war if world opinion turns against us now i think israel i don't think israel will not go in to gaza because of that but it has to be a consideration how much pressure can be put on the united states how long will president biden keep his current trajectory which is full support of israel once the uh, the ground war starts and you know they're going to is there going to be an errant uh, israeli shell that hits some Palestinians that are still there that Hamas won't allow to leave? Of course. Is there there going to be, even though Israel does everything they can do to minimize civilian casualties, then you're still going to have situations where Israel is forced to take out Hamas fighter elements that are located in civilian areas, and there's going to be the death of civilians. Hamas is going to use that. How much pressure can the world put on Israel and can Israel stand up to that pressure once they began the ground war? That has to be one of their considerations. And and here's a, here's a question that I'm sure that the IDF is asking itself. What was plan B after Hamas initial attack? They had to know that Israel's response, what it was going to be. I mean, are they baiting Israel to invade Gaza from some greater purpose? I think, the calling up of 350,000 troops in Israel suggests you don't need that many to go into Gaza. You don't need that many to fight a northern uh, a war against Hezbollah in the north. but you would need that many if you're assuming that Iran set this whole thing up and they're using it as an opportunity to broaden this war. Uh, you know it, it, and it could be that Iran had this planned all around. Uh, It it, it, uh, had this plan all along, I should say, that they were going to use this as an opportunity to make a final push against Israel. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Israel and the Saudis were getting uh, uh, close to some type of agreement. Um, The mullahs in Iran hate the Saudis. I mean, in the background of all this, you've got the Sunni-Shia conflict that's been going on between Muslims forever. I mean, the, the Shias in, um, in Iran are opposing the Sunnis just about everywhere else. I mean, Iran is, is mostly Shia, and then the Sunnis are Jordan, Saudi Arabia. So the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia are religious as well as political. And so you've got, you, you know, the question is, which way is Saudi Arabia going to go in this? I think Israel's trying to factor that in as they think about broadening the war. Um, right now, Israel has a unity government. I mean, before Netanyahu was the prime minister, he, he called the shots, but he's not running the government by himself anymore. He's got Benny Gantz and Gadi Essenkott, And the, the reports coming out of Israel is that there's disagreement about, between those three about what to do. so, they, they can't decide between the three of them what to do about Lebanon. Now, maybe they've decided by now, but at the beginning, there was a lot of conflict between those three about the proper response. And they've got to all be on the same page now because Netanyahu is not calling the shots by himself. Um, you, and, of course, you've got the president of the United States on Air Force One when he was coming back from uh, Israel He was making statements that made it sound like, well, maybe Israel's not going to go into Gaza. Maybe there's been some conversation between the United States and Israel to avoid Israel broadening the war by going into Gaza. You you have to put that on the table. And, And behind all of this, we need to remember the cultural and political structure of Sharia law. And the West has trouble understanding it. Because in a country run by Sharia law, there are no citizens. You know, we we get the idea of a citizen from Greek, from Greco-Roman culture, the Greeks and the Romans, where citizens actually had rights. But in Sharia law, there's only rulers and subjects. And, and that's it. The obligation of the subjects is to obey the ruler as long as the ruler is obeying the Quran. And so there, there are no rights. For the subjects, in a war, they're cannon fodder. I mean, that's it, it. If if they're fighting, when Hamas is fighting, that's why they don't have any qualms about putting anti-aircraft barrier uh, uh, um, units, rather, um, into in, or near hospitals or in neighborhoods, because the subjects are expendable. I mean, they're If when you have a jihad. There are two responsibilities in jihad: to fight and to die. Some are tasked with the fighting, and some are tasked with dying. Um, you know, we we need to take the Muslim Brotherhood at their word when they say things like, "Islam is our way," "the Prophet is our leader," "the Quran is our law," "jihad is our way," and "dying is the way of Allah." And and it's a it's a high honor when they say that. That's not just a saying. That's not just something that they're putting out there for propaganda purposes. They're saying who they are. Um, and, th- th- I mean, th- they really mean that. This this isn't just sloganeering. So the two responsibilities, some are, have the responsibility to fight and some to die. In the West, we see civilians dying in a conflict. They see subjects dying as part of an overhaul jihad, overall jihad. Shahad. And that's and and that's why sometimes we have problems believing that Hamas would actually do the things that they're doing. Because we're thinking in a Western way about citizens where they're thinking in a Sharia law way about subjects who have no rights except to die in a jihad. And the death of the subjects is a strategy is a strategy. I can't talk today. The death of the subjects is a strategy, not a tragedy. Hamas, I mean, it's it's all part of the same jihad, the same war. Um, human shields and subject casualties are part of the way that you wage war, and it's the only way that they believe that they can have any advantage over uh, a military force like Israel has been able to put together, and of course backed by the United States, which is still. Even with all our problems, even with all the things that are going on in the military right now, all the woke nonsense, the United States military at this moment is still the strongest military force in the world. And hopefully that's going to be enough to, to keep Iran from getting in. I mean, the United States could take out Iran. I've, I've been told by several people in Washington that know about military capability and what the Iranians can and can't do. Um, you know, that, that the United States would have no problem in taking out Iran. But the question is, what, what happens after that? Do, do, do the Russians get involved? Do, does the war spread to become World War III? I, I mean, there's a real danger in that. All right, let's talk about Biden's speech and, uh, on Israel and Ukraine because that's essentially what we got. Um, there's several stories that I want to refer to here. Um, if this was supposed to be a speech that, um, Biden was going to make just talking about Israel and the United States support for Israel. And instead of getting that, what we got is a, a linking, uh, a linkage between Ukraine and Israel. And I was afraid that's what was going to happen. I think everybody thought that's what was going to happen. Um, by putting those things together, here's the story from the daily signal, by Fred Lucas today, President Joe Biden compared Hamas and Russian President Vladimir Putin and, st- uh, and uh, stressed America's interest in supporting both Ukraine and Israel as the two nations are under siege during a primetime Oval Office speech on Thursday. So there are nine Republican senators who say, look, don't try to do this. Don't link. I mean, they basically sent a letter to the White House and said, don't link Ukrainian and Israeli aid. Uh, but, the, the, of course, the Biden administration ignored that because they're going to do that. They know that that support is getting soft for Ukraine, but support is very hot right now for Israel. And so by putting the two together and forcing a vote on both, um, it's, it's going to be much easier to get more money for Ukraine as we're trying to give money and arms to Israel. This is uh, from the president's address last night. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Now, there are huge differences between Ukraine and Israel. Um, Ukraine Ukraine is rife with corruption. Now, Israel's got their own problems, but they've been a stable democracy since the, their inception. Uh, and it is, you know, it, it, it's just to compare those two and to put them in the same category and to put this war in the same category. I mean, yes, uh, Putin's a thug. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a murderous dictator, and, and I, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, he bombs hospitals with his military. Uh, he takes out civilian targets. But to, to actually equate Hamas and Russia— uh, now, there are connections in the sense that Russia is connected to Iran, their allies. And, of course, Iran is supporting Hamas, so tangentially uh, Russia would be an ally of Iran if the United States had to take out Iran because of this war. I mean, that's the, that's the danger of this thing escalating into World War III. Um, Biden moved on last night to talk about Russia, conti- the continuing war of the Ukraine he said, "Quote. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever has been a, had real statehood. He claims the Soviet Union created Ukraine just two weeks ago. He told the world that if the United States withdraws, our allies will as well. Military support, uh, military support for Ukraine would have a week left to live. But we're not withdrawing. In other words, that Putin believes he understands that the United States and, and its allies." are propping up the Ukrainian military, supplying them with the weapons they need. The Ukrainians have the will, they just don't have the way. And it's the West that's giving them the way to stand up to the Russians. And there's a byproduct of this that's a good thing. I mean, with Russia, they're they're depleting Russia's ability to make war with other countries. It's been estimated that as much as 50% of Russia's... um, fighting capability has been reduced because of the war in Ukraine. And so this is one reason that maybe if the United States has to go and attack Iran because of this Hamas-Israeli war, then it's possible that Russia is not going to have the capacity to start a war with the United States while they're still fighting in Ukraine. Um, But, you know, it's still, there's still a lot of controversy swirling about this. A lot of people in America are getting tired of the fact that we've got 33 trillion dollars in debt and we're spending billions of dollars to defend Ukraine and we're not doing anything to defend our own borders. That's the argument that you hear and it's a valid argument. I mean we're, we're helping a country maintain its sovereignty while our sovereignty is being threatened by people pouring across the southern border with no little accountability. I mean you've got illegal aliens coming in in waves. And this is, and, and of course, the focus now is off of that. You, you don't see anybody keeping up. What's going on at the border right now? What's happened in the last two weeks? Well, if you've been looking for news stories, you're running into a lot of issues because everything is focusing on the war with Israel and Hamas. Uh, The president said last night, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, again, putting those things together, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. I think he's asking for um, another $100 billion. We've already given $113 billion to Ukraine and the senators that have lined up against this are Mike Braun of Indiana, Mike Lee of Utah, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Rick Scott of Florida, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, Roger Marshall of Kansas, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, and Josh Hawley of Missouri. Now that's not enough opposition in the Senate, obviously. Um, if all the Democrats stick together and support the Biden administration on this, um, that that's not enough opposition to stop any kind of bill that would fund a hundred billion between Israel and Ukraine. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen in the House. Right now, Jim Jordan does not have the support to be House Speaker. Now he's he says he's in it for the long run. That he's but he's losing support. I mean, when votes are held. Then Jordan loses support rather than gaining support. I think the he had 22 lined up against him. He gained four people supporting him, and then lost two. So he's at an, an, a net loss of two, um, or in, in the w- with the when they voted for him, when the House Speaker vote was held. So, you know that I, I don't know what that's going to turn into. Uh, Republicans have rejected the idea of giving more power to the Speaker pro tem because they would have to make a deal with Democrats. And that's just not going to happen. And there are not very many Republicans that have an appetite for expanding the Speaker pro tem's powers. Now, there's a law that was passed after 9-11 that would actually, if the Speaker pro tem began to act like the Speaker, then the House according to reports that I read from National Review, the House would have to rein him in. In other words, McHenry could actually begin to act like the Speaker, and it would take a vote of the House majority to stop him from taking on the, the responsibilities as Speaker. because the And the law passed after 9-11 was passed because in, in anticipation of a catastrophic event where um, you know, you had members of the House were killed or we were in some kind of broader war. Um, and and so it would make it possible for this, the next person in line to have the power to keep the house running properly. And so, but McHenry doesn't want the job. And, and I, I just don't think... That he's 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 going to be willing to do that. He doesn't strike me as the kind of person. I mean, I think if Jim Jordan had been Speaker Pro Tem, that he absolutely would be exercising those powers and touting that law um, when you know right away. But McHenry, not so much. Um, so I I don't know what's going to happen. I it, it it looks to me like that they're not going to be able to find somebody that they can agree on. Now, maybe Jordan wins the thing today in another vote. I, one of the things that's turned off House members to Jordan is that he's been using pressure tactics to try to get people to flip, and people just don't like to be bullied. I mean, I, I I don't think that's a wise move by Jordan. I think you need to convince people why they should support him. And, of course, now every day that goes by, the pressure is building for the House to get, to get in order so that it can function the way that it's supposed to with all this stuff going on around the world. Uh, but so far, the pressure has not gotten strong enough to overcome a lot of the personal animosity that's keeping somebody from being speaker. I mean, a lot of this boils down to the fact the reason people won't vote for Jordan is because they don't want Matt Gates to get a victory out of this. He started this chaos. And they don't and Matt Gates supports Jordan. Matt Gates wants Jordan to be speaker. And so th- this is a lot of Republicans saying that don't like that whole situation, that they don't want to reward Gates. They think that, um, that, that that would be a, a wrong move. It' send a wrong signal. Uh, so I, I don't know how they find a solution. I mean, I, if I thought I knew, I would I would tell you. So here's, here's the thing with Biden in his speech last night. Uh, he links Ukraine and Israel aid because of the soft support for um, aid to Ukraine right now. And so this is, is this going to work? I think there'll be enough votes in the Senate and in the House to pass an aid package that actually includes Ukraine and Israeli support, money for both fronts. Um, I, I, I don't think Republicans will have the ability to separate those issues. Uh, They might in the House, but even there, I doubt you—I think you're going to have pretty much universal Democrat support, and it's going to be difficult to peel off, uh, you know, to have enough Republicans to actually stand up to this, which, look, should the aid be considered separately? Absolutely. I mean, this is a blatant ploy by the president to link these. Now, it's good—I mean, it's good politics— in a bad way. Does that make sense? In other words, it, it's not something that should be done, but the fact that it's being done shows that Biden understands the situation and he's trying to get two things that he wants done at the same time, one that's popular and one that's not very popular. At least support for Israel right now is popular. But as time goes on, like we said, I, some of that support, I think is going gonna, is gonna to fade away, sort of like the support that's fading for the United States continuing to fund the war between Russia and Ukraine. All right. Um, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, And a a lot of you are not going to be interested in the story, and I get it. Uh, But, you know, back in 2004, 2005, I I guess, there was no—you could not pick up a newspaper— you could not pick up a magazine, you couldn't go to a website, you couldn't log on to anything without, or turn on the television or the radio without hearing about Natalie Holloway. I mean, Natalie Holloway, it it was 24-7, 365. I mean, it was all about her as an 18-year-old high school student from Alabama who, when she graduated from high school with honors, went, went on an unofficial high school graduation trip with 124 other people down to Aruba. Now, the age to legally drink and to consume alcohol in Aruba is 18. So you have 124 18-year-olds with virtually unrestricted access to alcohol and a handful of chaperones. I mean, what could go wrong? I mean, they're, they were not going to watch them 24-7. And so when this story, the reason I'm talking about this is that there's actually been sort of if if you buy what vandersloot is selling this time the guy who killed natalie holloway uh, we've finally gotten to the bottom of this case and it's a tragedy at at, at the penalty that vandersloot is going to pay and and we'll get into that as as we talk about this a little bit more but I, what he's going to end up serving in prison is nowhere near it it comes it comes nowhere near fitting the severity of his crimes in this case. Um, But just to give you a little bit of review, because we need to back up for those who may not remember a lot of the details. Uh, May 30th, 2005, some of Natalie's classmates in Aruba on this trip said that they saw her being escorted out of a nightclub with three men who were not part of the party, not part of the trip. And the three men were Joran Vandersloot and two brothers, Deepak and Satish Kalpo. Anybody remember? I mean, I hadn't thought about those names in forever, but they were constantly being, in fact, all three of them were arrested. Uh, Vandersloot, Deepak, and Satish all were taken into custody, and they claimed that they dropped Natalie off at a different hotel. So the original story was, yeah, we were with her, um, but we took her and dropped her off, and we don't know what happened to her after that. And then later, Vandersloot changed his story, and he tried to finger the Calpo brothers. He said that the Calpo brothers dropped him off and drove away with Natalie. And so that, for a little while, that turned the focus onto them as the possible as possibly the ones who uh, likely killed Natalie and disposed of her body. Well. That story fell apart. And over the years, Vandersloot has told multiple stories about Natalie's disappearance. Uh, I mean, I was just trying to think of of some of the versions. In one version, he claimed that he sold her into sex slavery. Um, In another version, he was on the beach uh, when she started to convulse, and he tried to save her. But he failed, and then he called a friend to help him dispose of the body because he was afraid. He was afraid nobody would believe that he tried to save her life and that she actually died from having a convulsion. Well, then in March of 2010, he tried to extort money from Beth Holloway, Natalie's mother. Now, if you haven't been following the story, you, you wouldn't know that Beth Holloway pretty much had, as you would think any mother would, had her life turned upside down and she gave up her job i mean she she became obsessed with trying to find out what happened to her daughter and i i mean certainly i don't blame her for that i i think any mother would react pretty much in the same way but she was desperate to find out something and so this this monster Vandersloot he contacted Beth Holloway and said look you you, you give me $25,000 up front and then 250 or $225,000 later and I'll tell you where Natalie's buried. I'll tell you he, he basically admitted to her that he killed her and knew where the body was and that he was going to he was going to confess and if if she would pay the money. So a representative of Beth Holloway went to Aruba, gave Vandersloot $100 and then they got the FBI involved because they wanted to catch him. They wanted to get him into custody and charge him with extortion and try to put pressure on him to tell the truth about what happened to Natalie. Um, and then they actually ended up paying the $25,000. And, you know, Vandersloot at that point told Holloway, Beth Holloway, that she was buried under the foundation of a house in Aruba and that his dad actually came and took the body and put it there. But when they checked it out, it turns out the house hadn't even been built until well after 2004. So it was another lie. And he admitted that he lied after that. I mean, he had to know that he was going to get caught in all of this. So, so why is it taken so long? I mean, the next question is, that was 2010. So how's it, why has it taken so long for Vandersloot to be brought to justice for extortion and for telling another story about what happened to Natalie Holloway? Well, two months after Vandersloot extorted the money from Holloway, he murdered Stephanie Flores in Peru in a rage. I mean, he, um, he, he basically uh, killed her with his bare hands because he was, he was angry that I think she had you know, pushed back against his advances toward her. So he's sentenced, he's convicted of killing Flores, and he's sentenced to 28 years in jail by the Peruvian government, and it took to 2014 for the Peruvian government to agree that he could come to the United States and be tried. And then it took more years for him to finally be extradited. So he arrives in the United States. He pleads guilty to the extortion charges. In addition to no additional prison time, he agrees to reveal what happened to Natalie Holloway. And so they they make the deal because that. This is the only way that they feel like they can get closure. They can't prove without a body. They haven't been able to charge him and to prove that he killed her. And so when once they made the deal, he testified that he killed her on the beach when she resisted his sexual advances, that they went out on the beach and they laid down in the sand and he started putting his hands on her and she resisted. And he started to do that again and she resisted and he kicked, Uh, She kicked him uh, in the groin and he kicked her in the face and there was a concrete block that was there. He picked it up and he smashed her head in, killed her. And then he waded out, he pulled the body, took her body, waded out about waist deep in the ocean and then pushed her out into into the ocean. And so that's the story now that he's telling. Now we have, do we know that that story's true? No, we don't. All we have is his word, and he's changed his story over the years. Um, you know, I have questions about that story. I mean, why was the body never found? I mean, I, I, I get it. If, if the tide, I guess if the tide was going out, if it took the body out to sea, uh, but it, it, there's also the possibility that the body would have washed up on the beach. So I, I don't know that we're ever going to know the absolute truth, but that's the story that the probably the only story now that we're going to get. This is going to be case closed. But I want you to think about this. This guy, uh, this this piece of trash, which re- really he is. Um, I mean, this is pure evil stuff here. Uh, he's. We know that he's committed two murders. We know that he tried to extort two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from Natalie Holloway's family. Just a a horrible thing to do to hold over them the possibility that they would have some closure at their daughter's disappearance and death and that he would profit from that. And what does he get? 28 years in jail. He's going back to Peru to finish his sentence. And in order to get this plea deal, he he's not gonna serve any more time. Uh, any penalty is gonna be rolled into the 28 years Which means that he will be released in 2045. At that time, he'll be 57 years old. Natalie Holloway Holloway would have been 37 years old this year if she had lived. And uh, you know, this is—I just don't. It's hard to see the justice being done in this case with a prison term like that for two murders. And just a, a sick extortion scheme, but at least I guess when you're looking at the, the the best part of it, and and this is a terrible best part, but Beth Holloway hopefully has some peace and some closure to what happened to her daughter, um, and you know that's that's worth something. But it's it's not worth a deal that gets Vandersloot out of jail at 57. Uh, when, he's, when he gets out in Peru, he'll probably be deported, uh, but as far as that's concerned, then the rest of his life can be lived out wherever he pleases, and there are two people that had their entire lives taken from them, uh, the young people who died because of his anger, his rage, his evil, and uh, I find that to be something that just reminds us of the evil that there is in this world. All right, that's all the time that we've got for uh, Truth and Politics and Culture, and I appreciate you watching live on Facebook. If you've listened to the podcast, please do me a favor. Go give me a, a good five-star review, and if you don't like the show, forget that I even mentioned that. But <laughs> we, we would appreciate you helping us build the audience for the program. If you enjoyed it, it's likely others will enjoy it too. Got a big announcement coming on Monday. We're actually going to pick up a sponsor on Monday. For truth and politics and culture, have a great weekend.